Okay, so I am um, delighted to introduce our speaker today. Um, Dr. Chris Smith is an internist in the Division of General Medicine and Primary Care at Beth Israel Deaconess uh, in Boston and Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He was born in Memphis, graduated from Loyola University and the University of Tennessee College of Medicine, and um, moved north, completed his residency and chief residency at Beth Israel Deaconess. He was selected as a Rabkin Fellow at the Carl J. Shapiro Institute for Education and Research of Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel, and subsequently went on to serve as the co-director of that fellowship program for several years. Dr. Smith has assumed leadership roles in education from the outset of his career and currently serves as both residency program director and associate vice chair for education of the Department of Medicine. He initiated one of the earliest and best-known clinician educator tracks for residents that has served as a model for other programs across the country. His novel curriculum for teaching inpatient procedures with attention to patient safety and clinical competence has also been adopted by multiple programs and recognized by the AHRQ. He is an experienced lecturer on a range of topics related to, uh, in particular, musculoskeletal medicine and medical education. He's a bedside teacher and a successful career development and scholarly mentor for trainees and junior faculty. In addition to directing courses at his home institution, he has directed courses for the ACP and ABIM, has developed and directed multiple medical education courses for international audiences, and has been an invited speaker at dozens of national and international conferences. He's published scholarly work related to both clinical medicine and education in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Archives of Internal Medicine, and other leading general medicine and medical education journals. Dr. Smith's excellence as an educator has been recognized with multiple institutional teaching awards. He's also the recipient of both the New England Medical Educator of the Year Award and the National Award for Scholarship in Medical Education of the Society of General Internal Medicine. He's clearly passionate about improving both the clinical skills of learners and the teaching skills of educators. And what better way to start our academic year than with his wisdom and enthusiasm to inform our bedside teaching. Thank you, uh, Dr. Kiefer. I really appreciate that very overly kind uh, introduction. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I have this strange fascination with Dartmouth. Um, since I moved up to New England 23 years ago, every time I met somebody who, with their undergrad or graduate programs at Dartmouth, I would ask them how they liked their time at Dartmouth. And they developed this glow and this huge smile. And universally, I mean, universally, they say, I loved my time at Dartmouth. And I wouldn't trade in for the world. And so I've never been up here. Um, I just talked to Ginger, who moved up from BI, and was talking about how much she loves it here. And um, I'm so happy to, to be with you. I had a chance to uh, have dinner with Dr. Kiefer and some of your residents and chief residents and faculty last night. And uh, took my daughter uh, on one of the tours of the undergraduate campus last night. She's going to be a junior in high school. And uh, from this, I begin to get a sense of why everybody loves Dartmouth so much. So thank you for having me. Uh, really appreciate that. Um, I oftentimes say that I have the best job in the world. I love and really cherish the honor of taking care of patients. At the same time, I really have this amazing privilege of helping learners and growing with learners and learning from our students and residents on a regular basis. But that's where I develop my anxiety, is that intersection of those two things. Because I feel that as an educationer, uh, educational leader and uh, faculty member, we have this tremendous responsibility that we have to graduate individuals who are ready to go out and take competent, kind, compassionate care of our patients. Society grants us this opportunity to take care of patients. In return, we must guarantee them that as we graduate our trainees, that they're ready to go out and take care of patients in an effective manner. And that's why I think this topic is so really important to us uh, to think about together and learn how we can do as good a job as possible assessing our learners and providing them with the skills they need to succeed. So my ask of you is that this not be a typical grand rounds that I go to where um, I'm very passive in the audience um, and the speaker does all the speaking. I would very much like this to be something we can participate together. Is that, is that okay? Awesome. So um, I have no disclosures. Um, I have thought about this for a long time, and my thoughts around this have been influenced by a lot of people. This is just some of the people who have influenced my thoughts through the years, and I want to thank them uh, for their input along the way. I want to start with a brief video. It's a video of a soccer player. 
And I would like for you to watch this video and tell me, is this individual competent at his sport? All right, but about six more angles of that. Um, but for just like 30 seconds, turn to your neighbor and help decide, is he competent at what his sport is? So you can come to consensus, and then why would you say that he is competent or not competent? How would you assess him? Is he competent at his craft? No defense, we decided. No defense? Okay. All right. Is it that he can't defend? No, no. The defenders couldn't defend him. Defenders couldn't defend. I see what you're saying. So um, does that make him competent? Um, in that particular endeavor, yes. In that endeavor. Okay. Other people have thoughts about that. We said we got to vote that. Defend, defenders, was that? I was kidding, by the way. No, they couldn't do anything. Yeah. So it, it, defenders couldn't do anything. So he clearly was good at some aspect of his craft, right? He was able to dribble around them, made them look a little silly. Um, he was really good at his craft. Right? But a pass to other players on his team. We didn't see him pass to other players on his team, which maybe we say that as a good, uh, competent soccer player, uh, passing to other players is something we might want to see. Ginger. So I initially thought yes, and then my neighbor, Professor Lurie, pointed out it depends on what his role is. Hmm. So when we talk about competence, we talk about how, what is somebody's ability at that moment, at that time, at that craft, and so what is his role as part of that team? Is he a good team member, potentially, and do we know if he was participating as a team member? Yes? Is competence a personal performance or how you're prepared against your, your peers or your opponents. Ah, so we're going to get into this idea. Is this a normative or criterion-based? So if we say it's criterion-based, then there are certain things. Can he pass? Is he a good teammate? Or is it um, a, a, a comparative thing, so a normative thing, where it's like, how does he compare to the people in the field? Which raises the question, well, who are the people in the field? Right? Is he playing against the elite athletes in the world, and he made them look silly when he was dribbling around them, or was he playing against uh, my daughter's team when she was in seventh grade um, and uh, made them look silly? And how do we make that comparison? Other thoughts? I was thinking he exceeds uh, competence, actually. How so? Just because he's just definitely, um, it's clear in comparison, actually, if you think about it, in comparison to your team members, he definitely exceeded competence. Okay. You can make an assumption that they're all competent. Okay, so again, making the normative comparison, compared to the, soccer, the defenders on the field, he really made them look silly. He clearly achieved the goal that we may want to have of scoring a goal um, in this field. What else, if you were to line up a definition of skills you need to define competence for a soccer player, are there other things that you might want to know? Well, in soccer, you want one person as a finisher. He's a finisher. He's a finisher, okay. So, in, so it's a division of responsibilities, the idea that he's going to be equally competent in all elements on the field. Okay. Like, did, so, so say if you say his definition is to be a finisher, then he did that. Other things? 
Consistency. Does he consistently do it, or is this just a one-off? Endurance. Endurance. Okay. Maybe he made that one run. We're gonna say something. No, we're gonna make that happen. This is one point in time. So you have one value in time. Yeah. So one value in time. I, I also realized in thinking about being a finisher um, when I coached my daughter's soccer team. Uh, one of her good friends, Kate, would uh, do what I call cherry picking. Um, she would stand in front of the goal and just wait for the ball to show up in front of the goal and you know, try and score a goal. Like You couldn't get her to go back on defense to save her life, right? Um, and so like, can you go back and defend, even though if you're a finisher? Um, what is he like in the locker room? How many times have you seen a professional team that had uh, like this year's past Boston Celtics team? Had all the talent in the world, but they couldn't put it together? Right? So what's he like in the locker room? Is he professional? How many times do you see professional athletes who don't act in a professional manner outside of the field or even on the field? That leads to problems. And so we're getting at here is that to define whether even a soccer player, which is way easier than defining what a physician needs to do, has lots of different elements that we need to clarify to understand. And we need lots of different visual examples of this. So we just saw this one. Maybe after that he kind of like sat down and said he wasn't going to do much anymore. Uh, maybe outside of the field he's not a good person. Maybe he never passes and he's a ball hog. Maybe he never goes back on defense. We don't know that. And so we need more information. We need a clear definition of what competence is. And that's what we're going to try and do today. We're going to discuss competency-based medical education. Uh, we're going to review some new approaches to competency do domains, frameworks, assessment tools, and evaluation standards along the way. So this begs the question, well, how do we assess competence in our learners? And I'm going to talk a lot about residency training, but these same aspects apply to pretty much any assessment of competence along the way. And before we go forward and think about what we're doing now, I think it's helpful to go backwards a little bit and understand where this assessment in U.S. medical education began. And it really began uh, with the Flexner Report in 1910 with Abraham Flexner who, uh, through the Carnegie Institute, went around, as you know, and assessed all of the medical school programs in the country. And it was a pretty damning uh, uh, statement about the state of medical education in the United States. The vast majority of programs, and I say programs because a lot of them weren't really institutions like Dartmouth, the vast majority were proprietary individuals who you paid you would shadow them, and then after a period of time, you would give a lot, get a license and a degree. Not a license, you get a degree as a doctor. There were really very few standards. The only one that was really held up to any significant degree was Hopkins as being a model of having a little bit more standardization. And after the Flexner Report, there were attempts at trying to standardize things, and the apprenticeship model moved on to things like oral examinations. To finish up your medical training, you had to have oral examinations. And then as psychometrics got better and computer technology improved, we moved on to multiple choice examinations, which we still use to a large degree today. But then in the 70s, the moral authority of physicians began to be challenged a little bit, and cost became a problem. And the public said, you know, we need a little bit more. And we're not sure that we're really producing the highest quality physicians that we can. And we moved into something called process-based training. And when I was going through my residency training in the 90s, we were largely process-based. And process-based meant that if you go to a program who meets a certain amount of defined standards by the ACGME, and you as a trainee did a certain defined number of things, and you finished in three years and, and you did those things, then you must be okay at the end of the day. A place that meets standards, you do enough things, you must be okay, and that was process-based training. Well, the public got onto that as well and realized that we still were not necessarily ensuring that we were graduating physicians who are adequately prepared to take care of the public. And they asked us as a, as a group to come to a better way to define this. And this is really where competency-based training came in and saying, uh, the process-based doesn't necessarily work. Let's move it to a higher level. And I'll post to you this uh, table from a friend and colleague, Steve Weinberger. Uh, Steve was the executive vice president and uh, 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 CEO of the ACP when he published this. And it really is a really lovely article that talks about this transition going from process-based uh, assessment to competency-based. And the fundamental change associated with this is what our educational goal is. And process-based is really about the acquisition of knowledge. Can I give you knowledge and can you send it back to me in some way and tell me that you learned it? It's all about the knowledge. And a competency-based, it really is much more about what do you do with that knowledge? So if I give you the knowledge and you give it back to me, that's great, but what do you really do with it? 
How do you utilize that knowledge and the skills that you've developed to take care of patients? And that's the fundamental change from process-based to competency-based. And that's where George Miller from the University of Illinois uh, came up with the Miller's Pyramid. And really what this is saying is that knowledge is important. It's the base of the pyramid. But if you really want to get to an authentic assessment of what's going on, you have to get to the bedside. You have to really see what the learner is doing with that knowledge. It's not to say that knowledge or know-how or shows-how are not important. They are. But it's the does. It's the top of the pyramid that is really important. And that's when, in 1999, the ACGME came up with its six core competencies. And the six core competencies you see only had one of them being medical knowledge. The other five had to do with other aspects of the roles that we have as physicians and healthcare providers. And ever since 1999, we've been on this road of trying to figure out what do we do with these different domains and competencies and how do we assess them in our learners? We're going to spend a little bit of the rest of our time talking about that. So how do we assess and how do we use evaluation tools? Well, the shift from assessment goes from this indirect, mar indirect marker, so um, tests such as multiple choice tests or oral examinations and moving more towards direct observations, authentic observations at the bedside, looking at our learners, understanding what they're doing. And the assessment tools move from a normative standard. How is this learner compared to the other learners in the room versus more criterion-based? What does it really mean to be a physician? And what are the standards that we should have for all of our physicians so we know at the end of three years or however long the training is, that individual is ready to graduate from that residency program? And that gets us back to Meza here, as we were talking about, where if we say it's normative-based, he danced around circles around the people and made them look silly. He clearly is better. What we're saying now is that really, we don't know how good those other people in the field were, and we don't know if he showed those other skills, and so it's more important that we define a criterion-based assessment to determine if Mezzi and us as physicians are competent in what we're doing. So how do we get there? The first step is to go to the top of the pyramid and recognize that knowledge by itself isn't enough. And we've seen this, right? We've seen in our learners, those individuals sometimes who are the best test taker in the world. They have the highest scores in examinations, the board examinations, but for some reason they can't necessarily translate that knowledge into good patient care. And they need help in figuring out how to get from that knowledge to really good patient care. And to do that, as we mentioned before, we need direct observations. There's no way to do this without directly observing our learners at the bedside. And we need to use assessment tools that are appropriate for what we're trying to do. And it's not that knowledge assessment is bad. It's actually good. It's not a problem with that. But we need more. And it's not that knows how, which are things that we've been using in the past, such as multiple choice examinations or examinations of bad. They're actually good. And there's a role for those. Shows how has become much more prominent in our medical education training. We can take learners into a safe environment, a simulation lab, and we can test them and figure out how they're doing. And that's really important. But the most important, again, is the top of the pyramid, where we're using things like CEX tools, or we're using chart simulated recalls, or patient surveys, peer observations, to really determine how our learners are doing. <laughs> And we need multiple assessments over time, something that you were saying a few minutes ago. That one assessment is not enough. If you only have one assessment, you might think the person's great or terrible. And we don't know. We need multiple assessments to figure that out. Because no single assessment can figure out something as complex as it is to take care of patients. If you only had one assessment, you might have this one or this one and think that the learner's doing a good job. Or you could have the ones on the periphery and think they're doing a terrible job. This brings me to this idea of the Cambridge model of assessment of competence. And this is a little bit complex, but, but the way I think about it is, my mouse here, if performance is what we're trying to measure here and we're looking at, think of these other areas as spotlights that are shining a light on performance. Certainly our competence is shining the most important light on how we perform. But that performance is clearly impacted by our systems. Maybe when I'm watching that learner, They've got 20 patients they're trying to take care of today. And the systems are really slow, and things aren't working well for them. And they're not able to keep up with what's going on because of the system. Or maybe there's a personal influence. Maybe they have a cold. Maybe their child was up last night sick, and they weren't able to get to, to bed. Maybe they're dealing with personal issues that are making them struggle. 
And all these things impact our performance. And so when we think that we're looking at performance, it can't be an assumption that competence equals performance because there's lots of other factors that are involved. And the other reason we need to have multiple evaluations is because learners take many different paths to achieving success and competence. Some, like the top line, you wind them up and you let them go in residency, and you never have to worry about them. They're awesome, they take off. Some are on the bottom line, where they're just a slow to launch, and they eventually get there, you just have to give them a little bit more time and a little bit more guidance, and they eventually get there. But most of us are that middle line. We have some days we look like rock stars, and some days are just eh, right? I'm on that cardiology rotation. I like cardiology. I did lots of cardiology in medical school. I feel really comfortable with EKGs, and I look good in cardiology, right? I don't like oncology, right? All those chemotherapy agents, I'm not sure what to do with those, and I've never done that, and that's very challenging for me, and I don't look so good on my oncology rotation. And that's what happens in most people in the middle one. That's why you need to have multiple evaluations over time. So where are we so far? We're moving from process-based to competency-based. We need authentic, direct observations. We need appropriate assessment tools in the appropriate setting. And we need multiple evaluations over time. So far, so good. OK. I want you to take out a piece of paper or just something where you can write something down. I just want to write a number down for me in a second. You can write it mentally in your head, but I want you to commit to a number. I'm going to show you a video of a learner. It's a second-year resident. She's having a conversation with a patient. And I want you to assess her communication skills. I want you to tell me if she's superior or unsatisfactory or somewhere in between. Sound good? Okay. Okay, it's nice to see you again. I asked you to come back today so we can talk about your cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm glad to hear that you've been working on your diet and your exercise, but unfortunately, your cholesterol is still quite high. Mm -hmm. I'm going to need to start you on a medication today. Mm -hmm. This is from a class of drugs called Statins. The name of it is Lipitor. You may have heard about it before. Yeah, I, I think I've seen it advertised quite a bit on TV. Yes, that's great. Uh, now, it's a nice medication. You only have to take it one time per day. It has very few side effects. Mm -hmm. And it will help lower your risk of stroke or heart attack in the future. Mm -hmm. So why don't we go ahead and start the medication, and I'll see you back in about two months. Well, I guess that's okay, but how serious is this? Well, it's not serious as long as we effectively lower your cholesterol. It can really make a big difference in the long run. Mm -hmm. Well, you'll give me a prescription for the Lipitor? Yep, I'll give you the prescription today, and then you'll go ahead and fill it at the drugstore. And then I'd like you to start the medication tonight. Uh, taking the medication around dinner time is really the best time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. Okay, great. Then I'll see you in about two months, and uh, we'll see how things are going. All right. Nice Oops. All right. Make a commitment. Jot down where you think this person is on a one to nine scale. You're good? Okay. Does anybody have her as a one? Two. Three. Four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, we have a two to a seven. That's a pretty big range. Like two is like, oh my gosh, let's go back to the basic courses in, in medical school to a seven. Like, that's pretty darn good. I liked what I saw there. How in the world do we have such a range? We were looking at the same video, right? Communication about statins, right? A huge range. It's like, it's like this picture, right? How many of you see the old lady versus the young woman, right? We're watching the same thing, but we're viewing, we come to a different conclusion about what we see. And that's why when we think about things like communication skills or any of these marks we're trying to assess, it's important to try and define, just like we did for Mezzi, what things make up a competent physician in that particular domain. Maybe it's listing the communication skills that you're looking for. And then have an evaluation tool where you've got anchors that can clearly define what sort of things make a two and what sort of things make a seven for that individual. And if you start looking at evaluation forms out there, you realize a lot of them look like this. 
This is the mini CEX, one of the most commonly used evaluation tools, right? If you look at that, that's the exact same scale that we just utilized for this, this individual in this video, right? It makes us prone to have a wide range and a lack of reliability and determine how good our learners are. And it hinders our ability to sometimes provide really clear feedback to our learner about how they did. So then maybe looking around for things like this one, which was published by Donato uh, about 10 years ago, which has a little bit clearer definition of what we're looking for in a particular domain and how we rate somebody. To do this, we really are saying that our assessment tool needs to identify relevant educational outcomes and needs to be criterion-based with specific behaviors and needs to somehow facilitate the developmental progression of the competence, right? Can march your learner from here to here to here to their competent over here. Now, that sounds really great on a slide or on paper, but that's actually pretty hard, if you ask me, when you're talking about things like systems-based practice or practice-based learning, where I kind of still scratch my head a little bit and think about what exactly are we talking about with these. And that's where the milestones really came in. So about a decade ago, the milestones were introduced. And the milestones, as agreeing in the original paper for the internal medicine milestones, said they would explicate the six competencies by describing developmental progression of observable behaviors. Aimed at enhancing professions' ability to verify graduates and residency programs are competent at a minimum to deliver safe and effective patient care. And this is what the original document looked like. Does anybody remember how many milestones were defined in the original paper? <coughs> Do you remember? Oh, you. there were 142 milestones. <laughs> we're internists, right? We, we like to be very detail-oriented. And we've identified 142 milestones. It's a really great document if you read it. So here are the milestones kind of going down this way. This was the point in months in residency when you should be able to achieve those milestones. And here are some examples of tools you might want to use to evaluate those milestones. As you can imagine, the uproar from program directors saying, you've got to be kidding me, 142 milestones, right? And so the ACGME and the RRC for internal medicine said, okay, 142 milestones, that's a little bit too much. We're going to tweak that, and we're going to make it 22 reporting milestones. So now every program director twice a year has to report out on 22 milestones uh, for every resident. But if you look at those 22 milestones, what they really did, they took the 142 and they crammed them into 22, right? And so when you look at this document and you see all these things, those are the 142 milestones. They just put them in a different document. Um, and so now this is what every program director does twice a year, has to complete this about every resident in their program. Why might, based on what we've been talking about, milestones actually be very beneficial? How might they actually help us and our learners? What would you say? takes into account where the learner is in that trajectory. Yeah, so if I have all these different milestones, I can line them up and say, where are you in your trajectory and where might you need to be going? It gives, a, you know, as adults, we really want to know what's expected of us and where are we and what we need to do, and this is a way to help do that. Thank you. What else would you say? Greater uh, consistency or agreement between different observers looking at the same candidate. Yeah, if I can really define clearly what's expected of you at a certain point, then that helps with the iterator reliability. So if you watch a video and you watch a video and we have a clear definition of what's expected, we're more likely to have a little bit more agreement about that. And that might help me give my learner better feedback about what they need to do. So these are the things that we generally outline. It's clear markers you talked about. Uh, we can more accurately assess and uh, give specifics about how one does. Um, it allows us to follow the trajectory a little bit better and maybe, hopefully, identify problems a little bit earlier, right? So one thing that used to kill me, you know, years ago when I started this process was finding out in April that some learner was struggling, and oh, by the way, they've probably been struggling like this all year long. It's like, why am I finding this out in April, right? And the idea of this is that we can probably identify things a little bit earlier by defining and marching things out a little bit better. So what are the criticisms of the milestones? So if we say those are good things, we like those, what, what are the problems of the milestones? I find it's asked you things when you've had relatively small contact with a student, and you almost check something because you have to check it. So there's 142 or 22. There's a lot of things that I'm supposed to be able to evaluate. Um, can I really evaluate that many things in a learner in a relatively short amount of time? What else? Yes. 
Uh, it can make uh, the evaluation process longer than the actual interaction with the resident. <laughs> yeah, so you're saying too, same sort of idea that like if I've got to evaluate all these things, oh my goodness, how am I going to get these things? And as a program director, I'm kind of like kind of between these two. I, I hear that. At the same time, like twice a year, I've got to have all these markers to identify these 22 milestones. Totally agree. Anything else? Doesn't doesn't take into account the fact that uh, once you've cleared a milestone, it doesn't in one situation doesn't mean you've met that milestone in other situations. Yeah. So it seems one directional. Yeah, it, it milestones are kind of like this or this, right? In reality, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in EPAs, is that you're kind of like in and out, right? Nobody, you're more like that middle graph, right? Where sometimes you're good and sometimes you're not. It's not like you can check it off and move on to the next one. You, as learners, we're even as as, as Adult learners, we're kind of moving in and out of this a lot of times, and it's not a clear path. I totally agree with you. Yes? Is there any evidence that having milestones actually modifies outcome? Do we really know? Do the milestones really change the outcome? We don't really know for sure. Um, sometimes you might disagree with what the milestones thinks are important. For example, in your first uh, film script, um, some observers might say, well, she was talking about a brand name drug when a generic was available. She never inquired her ability to pay for a $200 a month drug versus a $17 a month version of the drug. Yeah. She never inquired about prior LFTs. She never inquired about prior liver disease. So if those aren't in the milestones, somebody might say, well, that's what I think might be important Are we as part of that. Are we forced to teach to the test in some ways? I suppose things that might be more important. As time moves on, are we identifying other things that weren't in here that might be important that we should like to have in here as well? Right. Totally agree. And this is what generally has been said. There's too many of them, 142. And with 142, is that going to be a little bit too reductionistic, right? If I break an individual up into a bunch of little parts, does that really make them a good doctor? I'm not sure. And that's really been one of the big things. And can a marker capture all the nuances of the system that's so complex, right? This is why we had 142. We're trying to do what you're talking about. But does that really even do it? And that gets to things uh, like Leach has said, that really deconstructing them doesn't necessarily mean that the parts equal a whole, and that the whole is much more important than the individual parts. We're trying to measure individual parts, but what we really want to know is, at the end of the day, is this person a good physician, not can they do these individual pieces? Even though Albert Einstein probably didn't actually say this, he's attributed to saying that not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted. And that's one of the criticisms here. And it really uh, raises into question, I think, as you're saying, does this really make for a valid tool now? Right? If we are breaking something down so much in such small parts, is it really measuring what we think it's measuring at the end of the day? So the debate leads us with, do we have something that's very analytic, that can break things down to individual parts, or is it something that's synthetic better? Synthetic being that if I can look at this person as a broader whole, how are they doing? And an example of that is the rhyme mnemonic. Right? So reporter, interpreter, manager, and educator. And how is our learner? Where does our learner fit on this? So even with this, one can be critical and say, well, with one domain, they may be a reporter, but in another domain, they may be an interpreter or manager, or even in the same day, they may go back and forth with this, which one would say even the synthetic one needs to be a little bit more analytic. So which one would you say is better? Is analytic or synthetic better in assessing our learners? I heard a yes? Yes. I totally agree. I completely agree with you. Uh, the answer is yes. There's room for both of them in assessment. Uh, milestones cannot replace a global assessment. You have the milestones to help guide you, but at the end of the day, you still kind of need that look and say, they're really good at what they do. They understand what it's like to be a physician and what's going on here. And so milestones do provide a framework, an analytic framework, but no single assessment tool will be able to capture everything we're talking about. And so when we did our milestones and our, our evaluation forms, I don't know if you can see this in the back, but there's a definition of like critical thinking, what we're looking for, and instead of saying awful and good, it says that they're struggling at this, they're almost there, there is no concerns, they're outstanding, and they're exceptionally uh, good at the far right. And we're trying to figure out how to get people to utilize the whole scale by the way we word things. But then we also have this global assessment at the top here for the learner, how they do overall. And then I really want to know your comments as well, which are very uh, important along the way as well.
And the idea is that each of these, you have a little bit of a window into the learner and their performance and how competent they are. And through each of these windows, when you put them all together, you really have a better understanding of how competent they are in doing this. And through this, you create a portfolio. You gather all these data and you put them together, both formative and summative, quantitative and qualitative elements, and it gives you a bit of a view of how that learner is doing and how really competent they are. And then you take this portfolio and you bring in people like you, wise educators, and you bring them into a room and you think together, does this make sense, right? Because each person may have seen them in a different setting. One person may have seen them in an ambulatory setting, one in the ICU, one in the wards, and you gather all the information you can. And we know from these competency meetings that when you bring groups of people like this, that you sometimes uncover deficiencies. I saw this one thing over here, but I didn't make a big deal of it because I thought they were just having a bad day. Wait a minute, I actually saw that same thing happen here and over here as well, and suddenly you realize, huh, maybe we have a little bit more of a problem than we thought about here. And they also enhance the iterative reliability by bringing this group together along the way. I want you to be my competency committee. I have a handout for you. Um, and uh, I'm going to ask if Kelly would help me hand these out for a second. And I'm going to explain these to you. I'm going to ask in a moment if we can break, turn into groups of four or five. And I'm going to hand you a portfolio. It's a scoring portfolio for one resident. And I want you to look at this senior resident and tell me, can he graduate? Let's rewind the clock. It's April, a few months ago, and here's your competency meeting. And before you start looking at it, I'm going to explain to you, because it's a little complex, what is on it so you can better understand. And I want you to determine, can this person graduate? Are there deficiencies? Are you worried about them? So let me explain. Let me look at this, show you this next slide. So as you look at this, um, this, these scores here, going from left to right on your sheet, are temporarily, temporarily aligned. So the scores in the far left are the oldest, the ones in the far right and the most, most recent. There are different types of evaluations. There's faculty evaluations, peer evaluations, hospitalists, ICU evaluations, attending evaluations, different sorts. Not every question, not every evaluation has that question on it. And so you will see those that are ones or lower, and that is of fives or the highest. Here is this uh, individual uh, class average and this individual person we're talking about's average here. Some questions which are the more summative questions, like this one at the bottom here, overall evaluation of patient care, that's on a nine-point scale. Does that make sense? So oldest ones on the far left, newest ones on the far right. Some are on a five-point scale, but the summative one after each domain is on a nine-point scale. I have some written comments that came with this, if I can read to you at some point in time after you do your assessment, if it helps you. Um, but turn into your competency committee, see if you can figure out, are there any deficiencies, where are the deficiencies, and is this person able to graduate from your residency program and take care of patients? Let's take like four minutes and figure this out.
And uh, what are they, and do you feel comfortable graduating this individual? Yes. So one thing that's interesting to me is I think traditionally when I see a one to five scale, I presume that three sort of means comfortable, and one and two is below that, and four and five above that. When we actually look at what the scale is here, three means that you do any given task about half the time. So I kind of wonder, you know, if you're able to identify abnormal physical exam findings fifty percent of the time. Is that acceptable? Mm, interesting. Great point. So you've clearly found some deficiencies. Uh, I'm going to come back to that. Can I hold that a second? Okay. Other thoughts, observations that you have? It looked like they improved over time. I mean, if you looked at the number of twos and threes earlier on, there were more than there were later on. And yeah. Into account when the twos and threes occurred, it just... There really was a, there's a, a, a shift, right? Somewhere along that mid or first third and the second two thirds look different. There's something that happened there that improved clearly. Other observations? The nature of the reviewer influenced the outcome. Mm. What do you mean? Well, the fellow and one of the ICU attendings in the hospitalist who I would have thought would have had high, would have had high proportion of visibility of this performance some of the worst scores. Mm. Particularly in the ICU. Right. Yeah. Okay. Keen observation. We'll come back to that. Other observations? Yes. If somebody notes that kind of some of the skills of kind of synthesizing and teaching and maybe showing leadership, which might be a more advanced skill in general, um, were some of the worst scores originally, and still those improved over time. They improved. Yeah. Yes. Some of the skills uh, may vary by rotation in terms of the counseling may not happen as much in the ICU if patients aren't interactive. So again, some issue in the ICU may be more so than other rotations. Yes. Missingness of data. So if you just look at averages, you know, that's biased by. Great. Yeah, so they, this individual had a lot more evaluations than this. Um, we did, for the sake of space, I couldn't put them on here. But yes, you need to have more, you would hope to have more evaluations than this in this individual's queue, particularly if you're trying to identify some problems. Completely agree. There are 15 different um, episodes for this resident to be evaluated, and eight of the people who evaluated the resident said they did not provide the resident feedback. We talked about that a little bit over here. Yeah, no, 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 not, uh, not loud. I was, I was talking to the small group over here during the uh, breakout. And uh, that was brought up as well, like, you know, do these people really not provide feedback during this encounter? Um, which, I don't know, as, as educational leaders, have you ever gotten a phone call from somebody saying, uh, Chris, I've got some concerns about this resident, and my next response is, how did it go when you gave feedback? And it was like, oh, I didn't give them feedback, right? <laughs> I've got to keep working with them. I don't want to hurt my relationship with them, right? Um, which is a huge problem, I agree with you. I'd really like to see the qualitative comments from the evaluators, yeah. um, particularly the ones that are giving lower scores, but I think even the ones that gave higher scores, because sometimes they might do exactly what you just said, express a qualitative concern that isn't borne out in the numbers. Yeah. 
So I have those. I didn't give them to you for the sake of space and, and time, and I wanted to see how you did. So uh, can I just ask real quickly, before I give you these, how many of you, because you know, we've got 100 and, actually, 165 residents to review today, um, so we need to move this process along a little bit. Um, how many of you say it's okay to graduate this patient, this, this, she means resident, uh, based on what you have here? Okay, so the majority of you. Okay, let me just tell you just a little bit about what happened. So Kelly was asking for a qualitative. So here, the, I print up just some of the uh, qualitative comments um, that came with this individual's evaluation. Many of them were very praiseworthy, had very nice things to say. There were a theme that came through, some the negative comments came through, such as resident B is on the quiet side. Sometimes that makes it difficult to understand his thought processes. Uh, sometimes he didn't communicate with me as early as I would like about some problems that are going on. Another person. Um, resident B seemed to be annoyed with questions, but uh, always answered concerns. And it took time to walk through procedures, uh, even basic ones, with the students uh, in a very kind manner. Resident B is a good resident, possessed strong leadership skills, but he sometimes came across a bit standoffish and brusque. And a lot of these are coming from the ICU rotation. Um, resident B projects a somewhat detached affect that can be misinterpreted in as indifference or, in extreme cases, callousness. But then goes on to say, however, as I spent more time with this person, I realized that he was really a very kind and compassionate individual. And so as we're reading these, what we realize is there's a lot of misperceptions about he comes across this way. As I got to know him, I realized he's actually this way. And so when we got these evaluations, we said, what's up? This doesn't quite fit with this person and his trajectory. You guys asked about this. His trajectory before we got to this point, right? So marching along, okay, and all of a sudden this, like, whoa, what happened here? And we met with Resident B and had a conversation with Resident B and was having some struggles at home and uh, was clearly not manifesting himself outwardly as he projects inwardly he thought he was. And he wasn't aware of that. And we had a conversation with him. We brought this to attention. Things improved. And the rest of the year went much better than it had been before. And so this is the power of being able to break things down, to have both quantitative and qualitative comments. Uh, it helps us the power of feedback. This had happened earlier on. Somebody had sat down with him during his IC rotation and explained this. It probably would have happened and been corrected much earlier. Um, you guys are good. That was very helpful. Um, and in the last few minutes, I want to take us to the next place that we're going in assessment. Um, and that is um, thinking about, uh, we did milestones, thinking about EPAs. How many of you guys doing EPAs here much right now? Some? Um, so EPAs are entrustable professional activities. And so far we've been talking about breaking things down to very small components. Uh, EPAs are thinking about uh, recognizable professional activities and thinking about things that are specific to a spe uh, particular specialty. And while these are being mostly utilized in medical schools now, there's been proposed EPAs for residency and specialty training going forward. And this is one that we're using at HMS right now. And we're saying that this entrustable professional activity, and this one here, let's say, can provide an oral presentation for a clinical encounter. These are for our second slash third year medical students on the wards rotations. Uh, so entrustable, pre-entrustable, emerging, and entrustable. Can I entrust them to do this? And it goes down and says, what kind of supervision do you need and what kind of behavior you're having? So it's really looking at these behaviors um, a little bit differently from the milestones, which are looking at particular type of activities. And they've defined the pre-PCE time, so before they get to their clinical rotations, what things should they be able to be entrustable with during their rotation? And then by the end of the rotation, what sort of things should a medical student really be entrustable with such activities? So we're trying to find things a little bit more of a synthetic and a little bit less analytic, though it's got, it's got both of them. I, I like them in some ways, but it still has the same problem we are talking about before of a lot of things to assess uh, and learners. It's something I'm a little bit worried about. It's, it's, as opposed to what we're talking about in this ICU rotation, this ambulatory rotation, for students, it's really saying, can they take a history? Can they do exams? Can they counsel? And various things and looking at assessment in that regard. And we'll wrap up with just two uh, more slides and a take-home points. The first, as we break down all these things and we talk about all these things in a greener way, I think it's important to remember this quote, that assessment drives learning, and learning is the key purpose of assessment. And keeping that in our mind as we're designing the ways we assess and we think about our learners is really important. There's a lot of debate right now 
USMLE step scores, whether to make them pass-fail or not, um, whether to make medical school. HMS recently went to largely making it pass-fail. Um, I think it's really important to remember that there is real value in assessment and helping to drive learning along the way. And the second thing I would highlight at the end with is that as we move forward from process-based to competency-based, and this gets back to the feedback part, this old idea of a summative feedback at the end of a rotation, right? Hand in some, this is where a lot of our feedback has happened in the past, is how do you hold that very difficult, tough end of a rotation evaluation or assessment uh, conversation feedback meeting, which is very summative, right? That's the kind of sit down and give somebody a warm uh, feedback sandwich, right, that we talk about. Instead, I very, very much believe that feedback has to be much more of a constant pinging back and forth. It's like sonar. It's constantly going back and forth, helping learners improve all the time. And so feedback really isn't a mid-rotation, end-rotation. It's every single day pinging back and forth and providing information. And that's where I think we are these days and try and help our learners really improve. So my take-home points. Aims at the top of the pyramid. We have to use direct observations, multiple evaluations. We have to take into the context, which is one of the reasons why we have to use multiple evaluations. There is a role for criterion and quantitative-based and formative qualitative-based. We have to utilize the expertise of a competency committee, as you guys did. And then we have to remember that assessment really does help drive learning along the way. You guys are pretty awesome. Um, I very much enjoyed uh, getting to meet with you guys. I really appreciate how engaged you were. I want to thank you for that. Um, and I, if we have time, I'll stick around and answer any questions. Just a couple questions, starting with Rick. Uh, just a quick question. I'm, I've been a program director for a long time. Do you train your faculty on how to use your assessment forms? Because it seems to me we generally use the tags as a training tool. That's probably not adequate. Yeah. So we try. Um, I must confess it's really hard with, uh, you know, 450 faculty. Um, we go to division meetings, faculty meetings, uh, you know, at 6 o'clock at night, go to the cardiology faculty meeting. And we talk about the tools and we go over how to do it. We can't train in the sense of using like true integrated reliability and showing videos in comparison. What do you think? Uh, we go over and we try and, you know, try and calibrate how you use the scale and things like that. But it's really hard to do as good a job as we would like to, to do. Similar question. Do you uh, teach your evaluators how to give feedback? And probably, and the other thing about it is in this day and age of gender issues, ethnicity, age differences, do you find that people are less apt to want to give feedback? Um, we do, we try our best to, to uh, provide uh, coaching. We have uh, sessions throughout the year for faculty on developing feedback. When they start the wards, we have a mandatory uh, pre-session where we talk about feedback. We kind of go over this idea I was talking about before, kind of constant feedback. We've created things uh, like Feedback Fridays where it's a forced time that every Friday the entire team will sit down individually. Um, resident give feedback to intern, intern to residents, students and faculty, um, talk about how that should go. We, we do sessions for our academies and medical educators to do that. Again, it's hard to like penetrate the entire 450 as well as we'd like. We, we try, but I, I think we're still struggling as everybody is to get to that end point where we really want to have it uh, happen. Um, I think the bigger problem we have as opposed to what you're talking about in, in um, uh, concerns about uh, misinterpretation of feedback and things like that. I think the bigger problem we have now is um, teams have, are so busy, the volume of patients, the pace, um, and the faculty turnover of one-week rotations, two-week rotations. Two weeks is like great if I get somebody on for two weeks. Uh, one-week rotation, if you've got two residents, two interns and a resident and some students, it's really hard to uh, find time to do all that. I think I find that to be the bigger problem right now. So, from the patient's point of view, I, I always get confused by competence and satisfactoriness, because from the patient's point of view, it's sort of affability and empathy that really scores big for them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about um, how do you, I mean, in that uh, interview you, we saw, we, we felt the interactions were all one directional right. and there was no engagement of the patient. Yeah. So how do you teach that, or how do you rate that? Because that's, if you're the attending, they're doing the synthetic assessment, coming in after the patient's been evaluated, yeah. you really have no idea what's actually going on in the room. That's where I think the piece, it's a great question, that's where I think the piece of being at the bedside more is so important. Uh, finding ways to directly observe. So 
having rounds really happen at the bedside. So the intern is counseling the patient right there in front of you. Um, when you go and see the patient in the outpatient clinic, make sure you're in the room with the resident counseling the patient so you can observe that. Um, having the ICU rounds happen at the bedside so you're there. We also do uh, very much of a 360 evaluation. So I'm getting feedback from patients, from nurses, um, from peers. And you know, there's always a student who can like turn it on for the faculty member. Um, but what do they look like behind the scenes? And I tell you what, resident evaluations are really powerful for that. Um, they can highlight things that you may not see. Nurses are not shy about telling you what they think. Um, I will say, I must confess that fac uh, to me, patient evaluations have a strong ceiling effect. Patients are very hesitant to say anything bad about their physicians. Um, and so I, if I ever see a patient evaluation that's you know, a little bit low, that always raises a red flag for me that something's going on. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.